I want to review some of what we talked about last week just to get us warmed up. 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to the church that's in Corinth, and it has 16 chapters, and there's a lot of different ways that people have broken it up and and tried to describe how this letter is structured, uh, because it's not just a haphazard collection of thoughts and ideas, but the Holy Ghost inspired the Apostle Paul to write it, and it does have a structure, and there are different component parts of it. The first part is just a simple opening, a greeting. That's customary in Paul's writings. Uh, who, who can remember uh, what the second part's about? What's, what's addressed there? It was a big word I wrote on here last week, but yeah, 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 ecclesiological. Yeah, we'll just go with, uh, because I'm not sure I can spell it without uh, help right now, we're just going to go with clicks. okay? They were breaking off into factions and cliques, and we all kind of know what that means. There was division. And so for a few chapters at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul has to deal with that. There was disunity brewing, and we talked about that a little bit last week. Then uh, there's another section. Section uh, starts with chapter 5, goes to the end of chapter 7. Do we remember what that was? Moral. Moral. These are moral issues. Now, All of these issues are chaos. There's uh, ecclesiological chaos or division chaos. Uh, There's moral chaos. What was the third section? Chaos involving worship. When I say worship, I mean the way that they were gathering together. When they would gather together for the Lord's Supper, there was some misbehavior that was going on. They just... They weren't following their best practices. Uh, They were getting some things wrong with the Lord's Supper, communion, we call it. They were getting some things wrong with exercising supernatural spiritual gifts. And there was just some chaos that needed to be addressed, and Paul did that in this section of the letter. Fourth and finally, chapter 15 is a long chapter, and it deals with doctrinal or theological chaos. And so... Uh, what was happening, and I aim to get to it and talk about it, maybe for at least a week, maybe two, uh, it's dealing primarily with the issue of the future resurrection, uh, not the resu- well, partly the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but more so the resurrection of the saints in the last day. And there was false teachers going around saying that that, had already, that event had already occurred. There was chaos. People didn't know what to believe. And the Apostle Paul took this chapter in 1 Corinthians, and he addressed that. Uh, Then, in chapter 16, he kind of wraps things up and closes the letter, and we'll just call that the closing of the letter. So really, the theme of 1 Corinthians, and it's difficult because there's so many topics, and we're going to get into some of them tonight, but if you had to try to distill it down to a common theme, just for the sake of being able to write a headline in your Bible, maybe, this is what this letter seems to be about. You might say that the Apostle Paul is addressing chaos with the cross. All the way through the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses various types of chaos, but he doesn't do it with his opinion. He doesn't do it with uh, the slick 
cultural teachings of the day that he lived in, he does it with the cross. And it's really tempting for us today to look at our lives, to look at our world, and to see the chaos. And we face the same temptation that Paul no doubt did in his day, where there's chaos, they tried to apply some of the world's wisdom, the world's way of doing things to resolve the chaos, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work as well as we need it to. But the thing that does work every time is when we start to recenter ourselves on the cross. When we go back to the foot of the cross and we remember the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we get that right and we just kind of recalibrate ourselves on that, it doesn't matter what kind of chaos you're facing, the cross can take care of it. Amen? So that was last week. We took some time and we we addressed those things, we kind of gave ourselves an outline, and we even spent some time talking about the wisdom and power of the cross. That's uh, in the middle of chapter 1, you see Paul addressing the wisdom and power of the cross to deal with some of the division and the factionalism that had cropped up at the church in Corinth. But as you go through the letter, if you're like me, I read through 1 Corinthians, and it feels like I progressively uh, get more and more uncomfortable because Paul's dealing with some pretty sticky topics at times. Uh, sometimes that can be lost on us because we feel like it's not a letter that arrived in the mailbox with our name on it uh, and that it's not particularly our issues, but they are our issues. They're issues that we deal with even today. And I want to lead us through a couple of these sections and make some remarks on some of the things that Paul deals with. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, I, I want to just read a section of that. It's impossible for me to cover all of it, but I do want to just kind of leap out there, read it, make some remarks, and then ask for some questions and comments, if that's all right. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm just going to read starting at verse 12, and then I'll make some remarks and teach for a little bit, and we'll get into some questions and comments. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I won't be dominated by anything. It's a pretty good thing to live by. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality, every sin that a man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So in that passage we just read, what would, let me just ask, what stands out to you as something that Paul keeps coming back to? What do you think might be the, the theme, the thing that Paul's sent, honing in on? There's a word that shows up, I didn't count, but it shows up multiple times in that passage. It's the body. The body. The body is what Paul is really driving at here, and he's making the point 
that there are some considerations we need to make when we live for the Lord, as the Corinthians were endeavoring to, as we are endeavoring to. There's some considerations we need to make about what happens with our body. People have called this kind of teaching practical holiness. I would agree that we're called to be holy, but we're not called to be holy just in the abstract, just uh, as an ideal, but there are some practical things of holiness that we have to start to talk about. And that's why I said a moment ago, there's parts when we start talking about practical holiness, the Holy Ghost starts and the Word of God starts rattling around in our kitchen a little bit and starts dealing with things that actually we touch and we see and we feel and, and we interact with. And it starts to get very personal. And the Apostle Paul starts talking about maybe the most personal thing of all here, our bodies, our physical bodies. I want to make a point, uh, and I'll get into more of this when we tackle chapter 15 in a week or two. But our bodies are not a bad thing. Your physical body is not evil. When God created human beings in the garden, when he got done, he called everything else good, but he called it very good. There's nothing intrinsically evil about your physical body. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, more than any place else in the Bible, teaches us that in the resurrection, in eternity, we're going to have physical bodies. We're not going to sit with harps on clouds, and and we're not going to have wings either. We're going to have physical human bodies. Now, they're going to be glorified bodies. They're going to be different than they are now, but they're going to be physical bodies because that's the way God made human beings. We're physical creatures. Now, are there things that are broken about our physical bodies? Are there things that we use them for that's inappropriate at times? And, and, and do, do our physical bodies break down over time and age? Absolutely. Those are all results of the fall. But you take away all the results of the fall, and the Lord returns at the end of the age and sets everything right, and every tear's dried away, and, and, and there's no more pain, and there's no more suffering, and there's no more disease. What we have in, in a setting like that is a perfect, glorified human body. And so it's a pretty staggering reality to consider. And so when Paul is talking about the body, he's not, he doesn't have his crosshairs and say, you bunch of, we're just a bunch of filthy animals, you know, we're just a bunch of, of nasty creatures that we have to deal with this, this terrible, you know, natural, physical body, and it's awful, and one day we're just going to be released from it, and we're just going to become these spirits that sprout wings or whatever Hollywood has led us to believe. He's not taking that approach at all. Instead, he's saying your body belongs to God. Your body is where the Holy Ghost dwells. And because of that, there are ways that we need to get back to of treating our body and, 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 and living in this life as a physical creature that God made. So there's a few practical considerations and things that we need to see. The first in this section that is very, very obvious, if, if you've read it or you were listening just now, is that Paul is, is making specific application to sexuality here. here. He's saying that if, if you are sexually active with a person, then you become one with them. And he says, and it's very, very important to anybody, but it's even so much the more important to those that are filled with the Holy Ghost that are bought at a price, and that we, because we are in Christ, we're part of his body, and whatever we choose to participate in, we're bringing Christ into that, and you can see how, how offensive that can be whenever we consider the implications of that. And so he's talking 
about sexual immorality. And he's saying that our body is for serving the Lord. Our personal bodies are part of Christ's body, the church. And that when you're sexually joined to your spouse and you're married, we just had a wedding here, when, when you're doing that within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, then that's completely within bounds. That's God's plan. That doesn't fall under the parameters of what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And sexual relations between a husband and a wife are not nothing to be ashamed of, and there's nothing wrong with it in the least. But when you take it outside of the parameters of marriage, that's what the Apostle Paul is driving at when he talks about sexual immorality. And he's, he even brings out uh, and says, would you, would you join yourself to a harlot or a prostitute? He says, certainly not. And he, he's kind of using that as a, as a pretty colorful way of getting our attention uh, and saying, you know, you would probably never consider that to be okay, but consider what other things we do with our bodies that might be offensive and might grieve the Holy Ghost. So does God care about our bodies? Yes. The answer is yes. And he says it, he, he, he he makes no mistake about it in this short passage that we read. It's, he's constantly referring to the body, the body, the body, the body. Glorify God in your spirit and in your body, which belong to the Lord. And so I would make an additional application. I would say that, that we probably, we can't get away. See, now listen, everybody. I'm medicated tonight, Okay. And so my spelling skills are, might be somewhat lacking. He is making direct application to sexual immorality. You can read the passage. That's very, very clear. But, and I don't want to put words in the Apostle Paul's mouth or in the Holy Ghost's mouth, but can we, can we expand the scope just for a minute and recognize that we do all kinds of things with our bodies, right? And so when Paul opens up the topic of practical holiness in our bodies, there's all kinds of things that come to mind. What's something that comes to mind that we need to make sure we're living right with regards to our bodies? If we're going to honor our bodies and honor God by honoring our bodies. Any, anyone have an answer? Taking care of it physically. Absolutely. Let me break that down. What are some ways that we take care of our body physically? Rest. That's great. I didn't have that one written down, but yes, rest. Rest. Rest is important. Rest is one of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath. You need to have, I mean, you don't have to, I'm not saying you have to observe Saturday Sabbath, but you need to have a pattern of rest in your life. It's important. God designed the human body that way. Anyone else? Eating, what we eat. What we eat. I'm going to write the word, okay? No one walk out, okay? No one walk out. I wrote the word diet. I know it's the last day of January. I know everybody's, everyone's resolutions are already in the grave, okay? May they rest in peace. I'm not trying to upset anybody. We might have some counseling that's available afterwards. Eating, exercise, I heard someone say exercise, that's great. So we need the rest, but listen, too much rest, okay? Got to exercise, got to exercise. We'll just say, let's just say be active, okay? 
I don't want to trigger anyone tonight. I'm trying really hard. Okay. What else? Anything else? Yeah, hygiene. It's good. Everyone likes that. Oh, how do I spell hygiene? I think I got it. Anyone else? This is good. We don't think about these things sometimes as spiritual things, but when we things in the category of spiritual things, these are things that can either dishonor God or honor God. Okay, yeah. So I would, I'm going to branch that off and just off of eating and diet, and I'm just going to say, oop, here we go. I'm just going to say consumption. Sister Rita said what we read, what we listen to, look at, all that kind of stuff. We do that. That's, we interact with the world around us with our bodies, with our eyes, with our ears, with our hands and feet. So that's good. This is good, and, this, and this, is, this is practical holiness. These are issues we could, we could take a week, and we could spend a whole week on each of these, and we could do some very, very, I mean, we could have some very, I think, interesting and, and profitable conversations about these things, because these are things that, that we can struggle with, that we can struggle with. We have to have a good stewardship of our body. We have to have a good stewardship of our body. Hmm? Take a vacation, yeah, yeah. If you could take a vacation, do a little extended rest. Sometimes, some, uh, you need to rest every, you rest every day a little bit. You need to rest every week a little bit. And occasionally, you need to take a little extended time if you can and, and rest for an extended time. Not abusing your body. Okay, so I was wondering when we were going to get here. Um, I'm going to say, right. Yeah, I'm, I wrote down, I wrote down uh, substances that harm your body, um, there's physical, there's, you can, I mean, piercing, stuff like that, like, there's things, there's way that, ways that you harm your body, um, and we're talking, of course, about intentional uh, harm. Talking about the things uh, you ingest that harm your body, things you can become addicted to, things that uh, are counterproductive to your health. That's the same. It works the same way in our physical body as it does. Our bodies also contain. Uh, it's still physical in a sense, but there's a mental, emotional component of our body that we can't. It's not really helpful to draw lines in between the emotional, mental part of our body and the physical, because there's so much connectivity there. The things that we do in our physical body absolutely impact what happens mentally and emotionally in our lives. And so these things are all interconnected. And if you're doing something physically that harms you emotionally or mentally, it's not good. It's, it's, it's not good at all. Uh, and, and it can have the other effect too. They can kind of form a symbiotic relationship where if your mental and your emotional state uh, is, is in a bad place and you're not pulling yourself, not doing the things to pull yourself out of that, or getting the help you need to pull yourself out of that, uh, it can start to exact a physical toll on your body. We all know that. Right, exercise in your mind is, is exercise is as much for your mind as it is your physical body. 
Keeping your body clean. Yeah, we've got hygiene. Yep. This is a good list. This is a, this is a good uh, board of thoughts. Now, I want to ask again, does God care? Yes. Yes. And sometimes, and, and absolutely, I don't want to discount what Paul is dealing with directly here when he's talking directly about sexual immorality. Make no mistake, that's what's directly being addressed here. But when you open up the topic of the body, you end up in all of these other categories as well, and you don't have to stretch very far to get to them. And so sometimes when we read the Word of God and we read a, a section of Scripture like this, we can, almost, we can almost relegate what God's Word has to say about a topic to the most extreme or the most, you know, uh, I don't, the word, I don't have a good word for it. It's not extreme. We can almost, we can almost decide that this is the topic we're going to talk about at the expense of all these other ones that we need to address as well. And so, uh, this is a, this is a good list. I would say this, just practical teaching, just for a minute, just to piggyback off of what this is, and then I'll erase it and we'll move on. Don't trash your body. Don't trash your body. You only get one of them. You only get one of them. Uh, there is stuff that you can put in your body that is not healthy for your body. I know I'm not telling you anything you probably don't already know. There are things that you can eat and drink that are bad and that will cause your body to break down faster and not perform at its potential. I'm talking about drugs, I'm talking about substances, I'm talking about food. And I'm not just talking about the kind, but I'm talking about the amount. Mm-hmm. It is. You're, you're right. I hear my dad say it sometimes. He, he jokes and he says the same. He repeats that. And he says that when we're out. He says exactly what you said, Brother Deaver. And the earlier, I, I reckon that the earlier in life we can hear that maxim and we can attach ourselves to it and start to, to work around it, the probably the better off we'll be. Now, of course, there's things that happen with our health that sometimes are out of our control. But there's a lot of things, probably more than we would like to admit, that are in our control. Here in a minute, maybe if we have time, I'm going to get to chapter 11. It talks about hair. Talk about men's hair, women's hair. You can't, I mean, listen, everybody, you see? There's some things in life you can't control. And I, I joke with people. With Walker, I would joke with people. They would, they would pick on me because I started losing some of my hair. And they would, I'd say, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's some things I can't control. But then I would pat and say, but there are some things I can control. And, uh, and that usually ended the conversation. And there are some things that, with our health and with our bodies that are... Nature is going to run its course. But the fact of the matter is, what we do with our bodies and the stewardship of our bodies and our minds, it affects, it affects the kind of husband I am. It affects the kind of father that I get to be. It affects the kind of worker that I am. If I trash my body or my mind, there might be things that my kids want to do that I can't participate with them in. Ways that they want to play that maybe I'm not physically able to. 
And if it is within my power to keep my body from reaching that point, I want to do everything in my power. I don't want there to be any work that I can't do because I have trashed my body. I want to operate at whatever my, whatever my full capacity is, whatever the Lord allows my capacity to be, that's the capacity I want to operate at. And part of that is the stewardship of the body. It can, hear me, it, it affects, I'll just say for me, it affects the kind of preacher I am. Because if I'm in terrible, terrible shape, you're going to hear me on a Sunday morning preaching half the time, and the other time, half the time, you're going to think I need an oxygen tank. It comes down to, and I'm, I'm not joking, but I've been around people, and I've been around people that are parents and people that are spouses and people that are workers on a job site, and there's just, I mean, I can tell you, anytime we do something around here, you know who the guy is that gets to crawl in the small hole? It's me. If you ever walk through the building, you see a small opening. You can, yeah, you probably think, ah, he's been in there. So, <laughs> anyways, enough about the body. But what what happens when we read one of these letters is we start dealing with things that have to do with our actual lives, and uh, these are moral issues. These are issues that affect our everyday lives. These are uh, these are practical holiness issues. Uh, I want to talk uh, just for a minute about chapter 7. So uh, if you would, flip to chapter 7. Chapter 7 talks about, um, talks about our relationships. I'm going to save us a little time, and I'm not going to read the passage out loud if I can help it, and I'm going to just dive in for a second. Talk about our bodies. We have to have also acknowledge that so much of our life is the relationships that we have. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to be sure, Paul deals with a particular kind of relationship. Just like in chapter 6, he deals like with a particular component of what we do with our bodies. Uh, in chapter 7, he deals with marriage. There are some marriage things going on. So if I were to zoom the scope out a little bit, though, I think we could agree that the broader topic is the topic of relationships, which marriage is one. Husbands and wives, there's certain expectations that we have of one another. Uh, let's just read chapter, verse 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I, I, I hope you can read between the lines of what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. But what he's saying is that within a marriage relationship, which is a very particular kind of relationship, there are certain expectations. And he uses the word affection. He says husbands and wives ought to be affectionate appropriately towards one another. And basically what he's saying is husbands and wives, if you're married, you shouldn't hold out 
sexually on one another, unless it's for a period of time for prayer and fasting, and you do it with the mutual consent of the other. It's a two-way street. And so Paul is talking about that, and it, it's jarring to us a little bit sometimes because we, we, we hear those words out loud, the words I just said, and we're thinking, whoa, is, you telling me that's in the Bible? You telling me that kind of stuff's in the Bible? And the Apostle Paul is saying, yes, that's a part of our life. And if our marriages are going to work, if that particular kind of our relationships is going to work like it should, it's going to take husbands being husbands and wives being wives and everybody working together and fulfilling the expectations that someone comes into marriage with. Everybody say amen. Right. Right. Right, right. I mean, he starts off the chapter by saying, but I, uh, he says, it's not good for a man, it's, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's talking about a woman that's not his wife. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality. So he, you're right, Brother Deaver, he's framing this up within the context of sexual relations in marriage. That's, that's what he's driving at. And so he's making some comments to the Corinthian church and saying, this is how you're healthy. And this is how Practically speaking, we remain holy before God to where our relationships, this particular kind of relationship, doesn't start breaking down. In the same way that if we mistreat our bodies and we deprive our bodies, our bodies will start breaking down. And if we, will de if we deprive our relationships, and he's specifically addressing the marriage relationship, then our marriage will start breaking down and not being everything it could be. Do we see how we're, we're driving at that a little bit? He also writes in the same chapter about unmarried or uh, single folks and, and, and that life. And he, he, says, he says unequivocally at the second part of the chapter, he says, uh, there's nothing sinful about the single lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, he says, we certainly need married folks making babies and having families. But uh, I want to be sensitive to real life here. He says in the second half of chapter 7, if you're single, if you're unmarried, if you've lost your spouse, Paul calls on those to leverage that life for the glory of God. He says, when you're married, now, can we just be real for a minute? When you're married, when you have a spouse, you're concerned with things that please your spouse. There's things you do because you're married that you wouldn't do if you weren't married. I'm not going to even, uh, I don't even want to say the, the honeydew list. But you're conscious of the things that please your spouse. There's things that are on your plate as a married person because you're in a committed relationship with your husband or your wife. And that's okay. It's just, it's just part of the deal. But Paul points out in the second half of 1 Corinthians 7, if that's not part of the way that your life is right now, if that's not the structure of your life at the moment, that's okay. You're not broken. You're not less than. The way you are is completely okay. He just says this, serve the Lord without distraction. That's, that's not my words. That's his. Serve the Lord without distraction. And he, and he says this, I say this for your own profit. He says, I, I'm, I'm telling you this so that you can profit by it. Everyone say that's the word. So, without 
any further ado, I want to talk about chapter 11 for a couple minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. is also dealing with some chaos that was going on. And the thing that takes center stage in this conversation, in the same way that sexual immorality took center stage in chapter 6, even though we were talking about the body, in the same way that the marriage relationship took center stage, when we're actually, we're talking about, we're applying principles to relationships as a topic that comes... uh, over and over again, starting in verse 2 and going to verse 16, is the word hair. Now, is this chapter about hair? Yes and no. It is about hair. It, you can't, hair is the practical application that he's making. But if we were to zoom out again, like we did in the other chapters, and we'd say, What's the bigger context here? We would probably, I think, have to come down on the word authority. Authority and gender roles. Hair certainly is the thing that we get into when we talk about this chapter. But hair is a symbol of a much bigger reality. In the same way that Paul painted the picture for us in chapter 6, talking about, you know, you wouldn't go and have relations with a harlot, God forbid. He's painting the picture of a larger reality here, and it's a reality of authority and gender roles. And to have the conversation, you have to have the conversation about hair. And so I want to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 16, just for a few minutes. Um, First, I, I want to point this out. Uh, The Word of God says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Sometimes we can carry the logic of that scripture to a place that it's never intended to be, and we can almost consider, we can almost take that to mean that God doesn't care about our outward appearance. He only cares about the heart, and that's not what the Word of God says. God cares about both. It's just that as human beings, Brother Walker, we see the outward appearance, but we don't see the inward appearance. God does. And that's, what, that's the point of that scripture in 1 Samuel. So, uh, Old Testament teaching about hair. How do we get to the point in 1 Corinthians where we're talking about hair? There's a lot of things you have to unpack, and I just want to take you on a quick tour through the Old Testament and tell you how we got there. In 2 Kings, old Elisha's walking through the land, and Elisha's bald. Elisha ain't got no hair. And there's this group of kids that start picking at Elisha, and they start making fun of Elisha, and they start calling him bald. Because, yeah, they start calling him old baldy. And they start picking on him. And it's because there was a little bit of a stigma attached to not having hair. Even though it's something that just naturally happens, it's outside of your control. Elisha was suffering from this condition, and the children were picking on him and calling him out for it. And if you If you know the story, there's a pack of bears that come out and attack these children. It's rough. It's rough. Um, But they're they're making fun of his hair, and what they're doing, they're not making fun of his hairstyle or his lack of hairstyle. What they're doing is they're insinuating that he's worthless, imperfect, and without glory because hair is symbolic of of glory. Uh, Cutting hair 
in the Old Testament was a symbol of disgrace and mourning. You find in the book of Ezra, it says, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and I plucked out some of the hair on my head. It was a sign of intense mourning and grief. Um, Nehemiah says, I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Isaiah chapter 22 says, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. So when somebody would be, when they would gird themselves with sackcloth and ashes and they would uh, take on the, the pieces, the, the garments of mourning, Isaiah the prophet says that a part of that is they would cut, they would shave their head. It was an outward representation of what was going on on the inside. Micah chapter 1 verse 16 says, Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go uh, from you into captivity. The prophet Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 29, God said, Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. There, when God's telling them to cut off your hair and go to the desolate place and take up a lamentation, he's talking to the backslidden condition of the children of Israel. Hair was a symbol of glory and honor. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 7 says that a woman's long hair symbolizes the blessings of God. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 31 says gray hair is a crown of glory. Everybody said amen. All right. Numbers chapter 6 tells us about a special vow. It's a Nazarite vow. Who can tell me Who can tell me what the parts of a Nazarite vow were? There's three. Huh? Well, not to cut his hair. That's the first one. Particularly with strong drink, it's the fruit of the vine. It's grapes. So not cut his hair, don't touch dead stuff, and don't drink the fruit of the vine. Now, out of those three things, all three of them are pretty significant. Out of those three things, there's only one that you could look at someone and immediately know. It's the hair. It's symbolic of something. It's something that does matter and does matter to God. Uh, in summary, in Old Testament, hair was often a symbol of power, perfection, and glory. And so the absence of hair could signify worthlessness or glory departed. And so even into present day, our hair remains a visible from the world and consecration to God. So I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. It says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So man is the leader of the family. He is the spiritual representative of the home. A woman 
is uh, the respect to the is to respect the leadership of her own husband, and a man is to love his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for it. That's what verse three is saying. There's an order to it. There's an order to the authority that God has set up in our lives. Uh, it wasn't just that we need to believe in authority, but there's actual order to how things are set up. Verse 4 says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So what he's saying is a man should not have his head covered when he's praying, preaching, teaching. He's just setting some things in order. Verse 5, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. Let, but if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of the man. So Paul is going and he's making not a cultural argument here. And this is so important to understand. When Paul is making... When Paul is talking about this, he's not making he's not making a cultural boy, I'm rough shape. Cultural argument. He's making a creational argument. Okay? And what you will hear many times when this passage is addressed, is that this is relevant mostly to just the Corinthians, just to the people that were in Corinth in the first century in that particular part of the world. And I I can't debate that. It was relevant to them. It was very relevant to them. There was stuff going on that we could talk about why this meant something to them specifically. But understand and look in the text with me. That's not the way Paul is framing up the argument. He's not saying because you have these pagan temples in town and they have these practices and this is the culture that you live in, you need to observe these types of teachings about authority and hair and gender roles and order. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes back to creation and he says, on the basis of not culture but creation, that man was created and woman was created, and this is the way God set things in order. That's how Paul is making his argument here. And so as a sign of the order of things, the Word of God designates for men to have short cut hair and for women to have long uncut hair. And it has to do with everyone's position of authority and the way God has structured the creation and the home and even a society and a church, it has to do with gender roles and gender distinction. Before we go on, any questions? Now, this is something I know. This is something you want, you're not going to turn on the TV and hear them talk about what we just talked about in chapter 6. You're not going to hear anyone talking about what we just talked about in chapter 7. You're not going to hear anyone talking about what we're talking about in chapter 11 here, about that men are men and women are women, and we need to look like it and act like it. Chapter 6 talks, chapter six talks about how men shouldn't be effeminate. 
It's an affront to gender roles in the way God created men and women in the beginning. Woman originally came from the man. She is his partner and respects his position and follows his godly leadership. The word of God is clear. And to demonstrate this relationship, her head should be covered with her glory, which is her hair. Male and female are equally important in God's plan. We can't have one without the other. One is not positioned as, a, as, a, as one that lords over another. But their roles are distinct. And we're living in a world today where, I don't have to tell you, there's a lot of lines that are being blurred. There's a lot of lines being blurred. And we want to, the world wants to pretend that there's no difference between men and women. It's been brewing for a long time. That doesn't mean that women need to be subjugated to men and that they can't have rights and they shouldn't have rights and that men should have some kind of, you know, outrageous domineering presence in our society. That's not it at all. But what has been breaking down over the course of time is that there has been a breakdown of the distinction between men and women. Because we have taken passages such as the one we're in right now, and we have decided that they're not for us today, that we're too enlightened for them. And we've done so to our detriment. Now, verse 10 says that angels are involved in this subject. I want to address that. It says, for this, uh, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels spooked when angels just kind of jump out of nowhere into the passage like that. I thought we were talking about authority. I thought we were talking about gender roles. I thought we were talking about hair. What about these angels business? Well, if you remember, the thing that got the angels in trouble, a third of them when they fell from heaven, was authority. What was Satan's sin? It was iniquity. Iniquity is a particular kind of rebellion that says, that points at the person in charge and says, I can do that. I can do that better than they can. I want to be that. I want to take, I want to displace God and be God. That was Satan's sin. That was the sin of the angels that fell. It was an authority issue. And so the angels look on a topic like this and see how we are doing with authority. You understand? It's nothing spooky. It's nothing. It's nothing weird or, it's that angels, angels look on at things to do with human affairs. First Peter chapter 1 verse 12 says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us that were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Angels see what God is doing in the realm of human affairs, and they desire to look into things like salvation, and they desire to look into the church, the bride of Christ, and see how we are faring in matters of particularly authority, because it's the realm in which they failed and fell. And so angels look into this topic. Any questions? Uh-uh. Nope. Sealed the book on them. They rebelled against God, and there's no plan of salvation for them. 
Okay, I want to read on uh, just to get to the end of this passage and, and wrap up tonight. Uh, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes from woman. So while the first woman came from the side of the first man, even so now all men come from women. And so we are not independent of one another. We can't do this alone. And God, in teaching this kind of thing in, in the New Testament, is not pitting us at odds with one another, as though we have to be at enmity. came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself? Now, here we go. Remember, creational. We're not making a cultural argument. We're making a creational argument. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, some people have taken that final verse, verse 16, and uh, taken it to mean that if someone disagrees with this teaching, that obedience is not required. And that is not what is being said in that verse, in verse 16. Uh, If that was what was being said, then the whole section would be pointless and verse 2 would be incorrect. That's not what Paul is saying at the end of this passage. He's not saying, well, if this isn't your custom, where you come from, then it doesn't really matter. You can toss everything I just said into the trash can. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that the people of God are not contentious and we don't have the custom of being contentious over the teachings of God's word and we don't have any custom regarding hair except what Paul just described. Because what Paul described is not a cultural issue that varies from place to place and century to century. It is a creational argument that is made from the beginning of time. Does not even nature itself teach us these things. It's very similar to the argument that I could make, uh, I'm not going to, but the argument I could make about tithing and how tithing is something that is for us today. Tithing is the training wheels of giving. Because tithing did not originate in the law. Tithing originated uh, with Abraham and Melchizedek before the law. And so it's not abolished or or taken away in the law. It's something we can still practice today to our benefit. And it can act as almost a training wheels to our giving and teach us to give as we should. And the argument that I would make in favor of that goes back to the earliest chapters of the Bible. And that's exactly what Paul does here. Makes for a very strong argument in favor of gender roles. Now, I don't have to tell you that when gender roles start coming under attack, society starts going off the rails. For a long time, we stood in our pulpits and we said that marriage was under attack. And it was, and it is. But in recent years, the distinction between male and female has come under attack. Now, who would have ever thought that the enemy would level all of his attacks on marriage that he did and that he would have yet another card to play, that we would ever end up in a society that would accept some of the things that we see people accepting today? 
We never would have imagined it. We never would have imagined it. But if a society goes long enough without observing some basic teachings like this, eventually there will be a breakdown and we will have to deal with things like homosexuality and transgenderism. And that's where we're at. And it's more important than ever for the church to understand some of these basic teachings of God's word. I believe, for one, that people are hungry for truth. People are hungry for something that will stabilize their life and where they can position themselves for the blessing of God. I believe that there's more people in our world today that reject the things that I just named of homosexuality and transgenderism. I believe they're looking for an alternative. They're looking for the truth of God's word. Not only do we need to live it, but we need to understand it. We need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to talk about it with kindness, with gentleness. We need to be able to talk about it clearly. We need to be able to talk about it from a practical perspective, that this is something that will make your household and everything about your life, it, it keeps all the lines in place. And men can be men and women can be women and parents can be parents and children can be children and everybody can thrive and prosper and flourish because that's what God's word wants us to do. Are there any comments or thoughts? Because I have the landing gear down. So, it's a really good question. What is long hair? Long hair is determined by nature. Some people's hair will grow longer than others. And so, to put a measurement on it would be, I think, counterproductive and counterproductive to what Paul is teaching and to what we want to live. Uh, I know there's, I, 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 all you have to do is look around. You can notice that there's people that their hair for whatever reason, genetics, uh, biology, their hair grows very, very long. And there's other people that don't cut their hair at all, and their, their hair doesn't grow as long. There's nothing, nothing to that except just nature. So nature is in control of those things. It's a good question. Hmm? Well... Uh, the word used in the New Testament uh, indicates that we are talking about uncut long hair. Uh, but if that's, if that's a teaching you haven't observed, uh, it's as easy as seeing what the Word of God has to say about it and deciding that this is going to be something that's for me. And uh, just like what we do any other time we see something in God's Word and we decide, you know what, I need a fresh start here, uh, God honors that. And uh, it's not just related to this, but it's related to, to any category we're talking about. I mean, let's, let's backtrack and let me just show you the consistency of what I'm saying here. If you've been trashing your body, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you have a Red Bull for breakfast, uh, you know, if that's you and you're like, well, feeling a little bit like I shouldn't do that, you know what? Wake up tomorrow <laughs> and, you know, have something better. Have a glass of water. 
and drag your way through your day. Right. Right, it's, it's in the passage, it's in verse 16, uh, where he's talking about the customs of the churches and what Paul's saying. He says, you know, there might be a lot of things that are, that are, that are supposed uh, to be ways people do things. He said, but we don't have any authoritative teaching in the church except what he's just described. Everything else is up to every, everybody else. Uh, if, you know, if, like for instance, if you're living in a... I'm trying to think of an outrageous, uh, an outrageous example. If you're living in a city or a, an area where there is a particular hairstyle that would associate you with a very immoral group because that's what they wear, it would probably be my teaching here at Bluff City if there was a group that roamed the streets of Poplar Bluff that wore this particular hairstyle I would probably advise all of us, maybe don't comb your hair that way, you know? Now, would that be uh, authoritative for everyone in Missouri or everyone in North America? No, that would be pretty much confined just to our local issues. This topic is not a local issue. This is a universal issue. This is based in nature. This isn't based on the fact that Corinth had a gang roaming the streets did certain things. This is based on nature. Yes, sir. Mm. This is a very good question. Uh, Jesus was a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. A Nazarite is one that has taken the vow in Numbers chapter 6, and they would have, uh, they would have all the criteria met. Jesus was from Nazareth. He was from the city of Nazareth that made him a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. He did not have long hair. He did not adhere to the Nazarite vow. There's no evidence for that in Scripture. And it's very easy to get turned around on that because he's from the city of Nazareth. And so uh, you'll see a lot of times when Jesus is being referenced that he was, a, he was from Nazareth or a Nazarene. And it's easy to get, get that turned around and associate that with what we see in Numbers chapter 6 with the Nazarite vow. Jesus did not have long hair. Yes, sir. Right. Right. I, I, I don't know where that comes from, Brother Dean. I, I, there's a lot of depictions of that kind of stuff that just, I don't know where it started. Right. 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 As a, as a man, how do you know when your hair is long or too long? I, I think, <laughs> I think, I think, now I think distinctions like that probably do vary somewhat to culture to culture. In North America, a lot of times if, if, if you have a, a male haircut, there's probably something we all have in mind when we think of, of, uh, of a male haircut being a particular length. And uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of, I see your point, and it's, and it's a good question. It's a good conversation. We kind of end up into the weeds a little bit, 
but when you get into these topics, you, you get into some of that. I would flash back to the other, the other topics uh, that we talked about in chapter 6 and 7. There's similar questions we could ask about, you know, well, how, how, how much junk food is too much junk food? Uh, how do I know when it's too much? Well, uh, I, I'm not really in a position to police that. Uh, you know, how do I know if I've been affectionate enough with my spouse? Well, uh, I'm not going to police that either. Everyone must do what seemeth right unto them. And we're just going to go to heaven together. So, um, now if you have a particular question, if there was a particular person that would come to me one-on-one and ask me one-on-one, I would probably have some pastoral counsel on a topic like that where I might say, you know what, you know, since you asked and since we are talking in specifics, let me tell you what I think. Uh, that's not to say, I, I, don't, I didn't want to sound like I'm wishy-washy. No, no, I don't know. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is the word. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that's kind of, I was trying to think this afternoon, where can we kind of conclude tonight uh, that won't be jarring and, and abrupt? And, uh, and, and what I thought was kind of in the same vein as what you've offered, Sister Carolyn, it's, you know, the second that I, I start looking at passages like this that really get in my kitchen and start dealing with the everyday things of life, there's that part of my flesh that we all have that sometimes rises up and wants to say, you know what, I'll just, I just want to run my own life. I want to do things my way. And then I look down at my hands, and there's no nail holes. And I look at my feet, and there's no nail holes there either. And I remember that I was bought at a price. I don't belong to myself. And I sinned, and I was in open rebellion against God, and he redeemed me back. And I get to be part of his family. And if there's some criteria, some practical holiness attached to that, then so be it. And even the parts of it that I don't maybe fully understand, and maybe I never will on this side of glory, I know that because he loves me enough to buy me back, that it's for my good and that he loves me. I want to offer a couple books, recommendations. I recommended this one last week. Uh, it's hard to see the title. It's called The Wisdom and the Power of God by J.T. Pugh. It's very good. And some of the topics we've discussed tonight, I don't have physical copies, so I had to print off a copy. I have an electronic copy. Brother Bernard has two books. One of them's called In Search of Holiness. The other one's called Practical Holiness. And uh, they deal with, I, I've got the table of contents listed out here. They're very good, though. And uh, they, they're very, very close, very biblically based, very, very close to Scripture. And uh, not hardly any opinion whatsoever. 
just scripture and the application of scripture for the modern day. Very good resources. Let's all stand. I want to pray over us and dismiss us. Thank you all for being here tonight. I hope this has benefited and been edifying to you. I hope maybe that uh, I haven't addressed every single thing, but that you still have some things that you're chewing on and things that you're praying over. I know that every time I read a a letter like this that gets into some of the nitty-gritty everyday things that inevitably there's always a couple of things that uh, just kind of pierce my heart and get me praying and get me thinking and get me doing some spiritual inventory. I find that the result is always that the Lord leads me to a place where I can become more like him by the power of his spirit. I pray that over us tonight. Let's pray together. I thank you, God, for their sacrifice to be here at midweek, for sitting under the teaching of God's word for the interactions and the conversations that we've had together. I pray that we've been edified and, Lord, that your spirit that lives and dwells inside of us would continue to build us up and lead us into all truth and draw us closer to you than we've ever been. God, I pray that you would order our steps in these next several days and bring us back together at the appointed time. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Greet two or three people, four people, five people. Six people, seven people that you haven't met, haven't seen.